All right. It's about it's almost it's about three after, so let's go ahead and get started. So this past weekend, I was on my own watching three of our kids. Amanda was in Kansas with our youngest. And you know when you see, have you ever seen those pictures where there's multiple pictures on it, and it'll say, for instance, homeschooling. This is what people think you're doing, and the kids are all playing and just not even learning. They're just playing. And this is what the parents think they're doing, and then it has a picture of what the parents think they're doing, and it says what's really happening, and then it'll have like a stack of books or something. So this is what mom thinks the kids are doing. Smiling, holding hands, so cute. But what's really happening when daddy's watching them? What does he have in his hand? Is that a saw? What about the, what about the sword? Or even better, what's really happening behind the scenes? Now don't worry, no kids were harmed in the making of those pictures. Today we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I wanted to go ahead and open with the words of the Apostle Paul. You can follow along, it's right in your handout. It's from 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time that we have together this evening. And just, we're going through a topic that's very important. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection. If you, as Paul says, if you didn't rise from the dead, our faith is futile and their preaching is in vain and we're still in our sins. This topic is, is very important. We just pray that you give us wisdom and insight into the topic tonight. Help, help us stay focused on the material that I'm going to be covering. In your precious name, amen. Now, before the 1970s, when people talked about historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ, you'd get laughed at. It was like a joke. How can you prove historically the resurrection? You even had liberal theologians such as Karl Barth, uh, Rudolf Boltman, who would, they would affirm the doctrine of the resurrection, but they would say it was futile, it was foolish to try to present historical evidence for the resurrection. But now, since the 1970s, scholars have actually been taking it very seriously. Two-thirds of New Testament scholars now affirm five, I'm going to be covering five facts, historical evidence of the resurrection, and they take it seriously. Even the mainstream New Testament critic, Bart Ehrman, even confirms many of the, many of the facts that I'll be covering tonight. Gary Habermas, who's a historian and Christian apologist, 
who is one of the foremost defenders of the historical evidence of the resurrection, said that we have enough data now to argue that Jesus rose from the dead, even if the Bible was not reliable. Tonight, I'm going to be taking us through what is called the minimalist approach. And what this approach is, is I take five facts that most all scholars agree with, even the skeptical ones. It's called the minimalist approach. I don't even have to assume the inspiration or the reliability of the scripture. As Christians, we do, but I don't have to do this in this case. You can present enough facts that you could, you could actually pull enough ancient documents from secular sources to prove the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about this and you want to get even deeper into this, there's, if you want to narrow your, 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 who you're reading from, there's two names that you should get familiar with. Gary Habermas and N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright wrote a 600-page book on the resurrection of the Son of God where he covers all the history of first-century Palestine, how they viewed the resurrection, and then Gary Habermas takes ancient documents, textual documents, and covers those. Now I'll be quoting... From 1 Corinthians 15, I'll be talking about the Gospels. I'm not assuming anything about the inspiration of them. I'm looking at them as a secular textual critic would look at them as ancient texts, just like they would look at Plato, like at his dialogues, or they look at Aristotle. They just look at them as ancient texts. I've got a video here. It's Michael Lacona. He co-authored a book, Evidence for the Resurrection, with Gary Habermas. And here he's explaining the minimalist approach. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. My guest with us today is Mike Lacona, who is an author and sought-after speaker. He has co-authored a book on the resurrection with Gary Habermas. It's good to be with you, Mike. Well, you too. Thanks. Hey, listen, if you could just help us to understand this idea of the resurrection, we know it's been under attack ever since it's happened. Well, I think the first thing we would do is we would look at some facts that would be so strongly evidenced that they would uh, they have convinced nearly every single scholar who studied this the subject to regard them as historical facts, including skeptical ones. That would be things such as Jesus' death by crucifixion, that subsequent to his death, that Jesus' disciples had experiences that they interpreted as Jesus appearing to them risen from the dead, and that these occurred in individual and in group settings. And third that there was a skeptic, a persecutor of the church named Paul, who converted to Christianity when he had an experience that he believed was of the risen Jesus appearing to him. Now this would be like the modern day Osama bin Laden, who has an experience and then converts from Islam to Christianity to his own demise and preaching to the Muslim world. Didn't get stoned for it. This is kind of like what we're looking at with Paul. So now as historians, what we want to do is we want to come up with a hypothesis that will best explain these three facts. And we would do this, uh, determine which is the best hypothesis by saying which one accounts for all three facts uh, rather than just one or two, which can account for them without bending them or forcing them to fit like a square peg in a round hole. And third, uh, what can we do it without any, uh, what hy- which hypothesis does it best without any non-evidence assumptions? And the resurrection beats the others hands down. So, for example, the leading naturalistic explanation, hallucinations, it can account for Jesus' death by crucifixion. It can account for the appearances to individuals, but not the group appearances, because hallucinations are not group phenomena. And it can't account for the appearance to the skeptic Paul, because he wasn't in a state of grief. 
So, I mean, you could kind of force those to fit, but then you'll lose explanatory power because you're forcing them to fit. With resurrection, all three fit very easily. If Jesus rose from the dead, it explains his death by crucifixion. Why numerous people in individual and group settings believe they saw him risen from the dead, and why even a skeptic saw him risen from the dead. So, historically speaking, forget, you know, assuming that the Bible is trustworthy in any manner. Just taking the facts upon which most everybody agrees on, you can come to the resurrection of Jesus as the best explanation and thus we should regard it as an event that occurred in history. So I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to be covering evidence for Jesus walking on the earth that he was a real person. Most ancient uh, histor- historical scholars around that study the first century, none of them deny that Jesus lived. Richard Dawkins actually proposed this idea that it's foolish to believe that Jesus walked the earth. And John Lennox, in a debate with him, called him out on it. And Richard Dawkins was like, "Uh, you know, I I take that back. That's foolish. It's It's intellectual dishonesty to try to propose an idea that most all scholars agree with. So I'm not even going to be covering whether or not Jesus really lived. So I'm going to be covering five facts. The first fact is that Jesus was crucified. There's a lot more quotes I could put in here, but I'm not going to cite off 15 quotes. I'm, I'm going to go, I've just got several quotes here. Tacitus reports that Nero fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. Tacitus was a Roman historian. Lucian of Samosota, the Greek satirist, satirist, I'm saying that wrong, satirist. The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. The Talmud reports that on the eve of the Passover, Yashu was hanged. Yashu is Joshua in Hebrew, which translates to Yasus, which is Jesus. Even the skeptical leader of the Jesus Seminar, John Dominic Crossan from the Jesus Seminar, writes that he was crucified, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can be. Fact number two. After his death, Jesus was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus' first Jesus burial is attested in very old tradition quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, when Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians 15, he's, he's telling me, I delivered you what I also received. Paul's actually quoting from an early tradition, most likely in Galatians, when he met with James and Peter, the pillars of the church, and he was receiving a creed. If you look at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, it, taught, it, it goes through a format that makes it easier for you to memorize things. So when you see Paul talking about receiving, he, he's talking about a creed. Even Bart Ehrman says that this creed, most likely, this tradition goes back within five years of Christ's death. He uses typical uh, terms as received, delivered, uh, which is a highly stylized four-line formula which is non-Pauline in its style. 
the creeds originated because of the need to pass along important information in a format, like I said, that could be easily memorized. There's an acronym, POW, Paul, Oral Tradition, and Written Tradition. This is how, how scholars look at the New Testament accounts to determine whether or not Christ rose from the dead. The burial story is very old source material used by Mark in his gospel. Gospels have different pieces and parts of the life of Jesus. When it, when it comes to the passion story, they all have one smooth, continuously running narrative. And this suggests that the passion story is one of Mark's sources of info, his information and in writing. And Mark is already considered the earliest gospel. Scholars actually look at the Apostle Paul as the most reliable source for the resurrection. Paul's letters actually came out around 50 A.D. in the 50s, and the Gospels all came out around the 60s A.D. And we know that the Gospels and the book of Acts all came out before 70 A.D. because in them you hear nothing about the fall of Jerusalem, and you hear nothing about the martyrdom of the Apostle Paul both major events that would have been written down. As a member of Jewish court that condemned Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, unlikely to be a Christian invention, there was strong resentment against the leaders who condemned Jesus. Like it says in 1 Thessalonians 2.15, they who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. They have a bitterness towards these people. It's unlikely a Christian would invent an idea that someone who condemned Jesus would then honor him by giving him a proper burial instead of being thrown out like a criminal. Also, there's no other competing burial story. If burial of Josephus is fictitious, we'd expect to find some other stories of what actually happened or competing legends. Fact number three. On the Sunday following the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. The empty tomb is a, is story is part of the old passion source by Mark. Mark's source did not end in the death and defeat, but with the empty tomb story. As I said, Mark is the earliest gospel, and the sources come from pre-Markan sources. How they know that these come before Mark is that it refers to the high? It, it never refers to the high priest by his name. It's Caiaphas at the time, which means that Caiaphas was still in power, and Caiaphas held office from 18 to 37 A.D. That means that his sources were within seven years of Christ's death. Tradition cited by Paul, as I said in 1 Corinthians 15 implies the fact of the empty tomb. He was buried, and then he rose on the third day. To the Jews, when you talk about rising, it means a bodily resurrection. An idea of a spiritual resurrection, like what the Jehovah Witnesses would teach, is totally foreign to the Jews in first century Palestine. When they talk about rising, they mean physically resurrecting an empty, there is an empty tomb left behind. The expression on the third day probably derives from women's visit to the tomb third day in Jewish reckoning after crucifixion. For Jews, it was the remains of the man that were raised in the tomb. 
The story is simple and lacks sign of legendary embellishment. I have the Gospel of Peter mentioned here. If you want to hear, if you want to know what a legend looks like, where there's embellishment and there's additions and exaggerations, here's an excerpt from the Gospel of Peter. This is talking about when Jesus rose from the dead. It says, Now when these soldiers saw that they woke up the centurion and the elders, for they were also keeping watch, while they were yet telling them the things which they had seen, they saw three men coming out of the tomb, two of them sustaining the other one, and a cross following after them. A cross following after them. The cross was walking. The heads of the two they saw had heads that reached to heaven, but the head of him that was led by them went beyond heaven. It's a tall guy. And they heard a voice out of heaven saying, Have you preached unto them that sleep? The answer from the cross was, Yes, we have a walking, talking cross. That's embellishment. That's legend. But when you look at Mark and all the Gospels, you don't see that. You don't see what looks like a legend, like there's embellishment and great exaggerations. Especially the Gospel of Mark, it's very simple. Women's testimony was discounted in first century Palestine, and that stands in favor of the women's role discovering the empty tomb. This is called, historians call this the principle of embarrassment. And with the principle of embarrassment, let me give you an example. You have a blue and a red car. They get in an accident. They're at an intersection. One of them runs a red light. There's a crash. Now, in the principle of embarrassment, the one in the red car, let's say the one in the red car is talking to the police officer, and they say, well, 10 years ago, I ran a red light, but I've learned my lesson. That person is giving a, 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 some, a, facts that could weaken their case to the police officer, but the police officer looks at that and looks at this person who's trying to be honest because if it happened 10 years ago, chances are that it's not going to show up on the records. So this person is trying to be honest with the police officer, and the police officer is seeing this as, as being credible. There's another example. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, he had a slave named Sally Hemings. It was called the Jefferson and Hemings Controversy. And what happened was Sally Hemings bore six children, which were Thomas Jefferson's. And it didn't start coming out until one of Thomas Jefferson's own relatives told somebody that they were his children. There's a law professor, Annette Gordon-Reed, who published a book on this. And this is what she says. Declarations against interests are regarded as having a high degree of credibility because of the presumption that people do not make up lies in order to, help, in order to hurt themselves. They lie to help themselves. That's the principle of embarrassment. If it was legend, if it was legendary embellishment, you would have thought they would have had men discover the empty tomb, not women. In the Talmud, it says, Sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. According to Josephus, testimony of women was regarded so worthless that it cannot even be admitted into the Jewish court of law. Also in the Talmud, it says, the world cannot exist without males and without females. 
Happy is he whose children are males, and woe to him whose children are females. Early allegations by Jews that disciples stole Jesus' body in Matthew 28.15 shows that, in fact, the tomb was empty. They didn't laugh at the disciples saying, Jesus risen, whatever. They were making stories about why the tomb was empty. Historians call this attestation from an enemy source. If testimony affirming an event or saying is given by a source who does not sympathize with the person, message, or cause that profits from the account, we have an indication of authenticity. An enemy generally is not considered to be biased in favor of a certain person, message, or cause. An example is John Adams, the second president of the United States, one of the founding fathers. He was up for re-election, and Alexander Hamilton wrote a 54-page scathing document on John Adams. Now, John Adams was known to have to show a lot of integrity. And Alexander Hamilton, even though he had the scathing report, he mentions in it, he commends John Adams for his integrity. That's enemy attestation. Even though he did not like him and he was pretty much his enemy, he said that he had integrity. Jesus' tomb was never venerated with a shrine. First century custom was to set up a shrine at the site of holy man's bones. At least 50 cities did this during Jesus' time. Since no such shrine exists for Jesus, there's no bones there. If burial account is accurate, then the burial location of Jesus was known to both Jews and Gentiles. This is called the Jerusalem factor. These New Testament letters were starting to get circulated, and Paul was telling people that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. And this was all occurring around Jerusalem. They could have easily went to the tomb. They would have known where it's at and presented the body. That's what is known as the Jerusalem factor. Jewish authorities who despised the Jesus followers would have only had a point of the tomb to squelch the movement. Saul of Tarsus was an example of how much they hated the movement. Fact number four. I, uh, there we go. Does anybody have any questions yet? No questions? Okay. Fact number four, multiple independent attestations. Paul mentions 500 people seeing the appearances. Appearance traditions in the Gospels provide multiple independent attestation appearances. Like I said, we're not assuming the inspiration or the reliability of Scripture. We're looking at these documents as historical ancient texts. Appearance appear in Luke to the Twelve and Luke and John, Galilean appearances in Mark, Matthew and John, as well as women in Matthew and John. Certain appearances, the mark of historicity, James, the skeptic. I always wanted to be a fly on the wall in Jesus' household. Could you imagine watching them sitting at the table and Jesus is like, hey, James, Pass me the Santa Maria tri-tips, bro. 
Okay. There probably wasn't Santa Maria tri-tip. Just, just go with me here. So pass me the tri-tip, bro. Pass it in the tri-tip. Oh, hey, James, guess what? I'm God. What would you, th- you who have brothers, what would you think if your brother told you he was God? Or, or how about this? Hey, hey, James, James, come here. You know the other day when you're giving your brother Simon a wedgie? I forgive you for that. I forgive you for that sin. But nobody forgives people except God. Could you imagine? Just the house of... People have this idea that Jesus didn't have a sense of humor. He probably did say something like bro back then. He, he had a sense of humor. We, all, we like to think of Jesus as this guy that didn't laugh. He was always serious. But he probably did joke around with his brothers. But James was a skeptic before the resurrection. He probably thought he was a complete idiot and a lunatic. If disciples lied about seeing Jesus, then ten of them died for a lie that they knew was a lie. Most likely, ten people would not just give up their lives for something that they know to be a lie. Modern martyrs act out of their trust and beliefs that others taught them, that was handed down to them. The apostles died for something that they say they personally witnessed. The disciples of Jesus died for what they knew to be either true or false. At least seven early sources testify that the original disciples willingly suffered in defense of their beliefs. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, talked about James, James the Just, about his martyrdom. The Jewish authorities took him to the top of the temple and they told him to recant, to stop preaching this Jesus stuff about him being the Messiah. He preached a short sermon in front of lots of people, and a lot of them started talking about Jesus being the Messiah at this point. The Jewish authorities push him off the temple. It doesn't kill him. He's still alive. So they take clubs, the clubs that that they would use to hit the clothes, to get dust off the clothes, and they bash it in his skull. James the skeptic was now a martyr for his brother, Norm Perrin, the late NT critic of the University of Chicago, he said that the more we study the tradition with regard to the appearances, the firmer the rock begins to appear on which they are based. Fact number five. The original disciples believed that Jesus was risen from the dead despite having their every predisposition to the contrary. Their leader was dead. Jews had no belief in a dying or a rising Messiah. They saw everybody rising at the very end. The Jews, it was foreign to them of this idea of a Messiah rising in the middle of history. It was all supposed to happen at the end. According to Jewish law, Jesus' execution would have shown him to be a heretic, according to Deuteronomy 21.23. It not only showed disciples' master was gone, but the, that the Pharisees were right that Jesus was a heretic. Now, there's alternative theories. You may hear these if, if you have this discussion with people that disagree and, and say that the resurrection didn't occur. You may hear some of these alternative theories. One of them is hallucinations. 
that the disciples hallucinated and all these people hallucinated that they saw Jesus. Let me make a distinction here. There's, there's a delusion, there's a hallucination, and then there's an illusion. A delusion is a false belief held with a conviction that is true in spite of evidence that invalidates the truth. So some examples are Marshall Applewhite of the Church of Venus, who committed suicide with 38 followers in 1997. Or Jim Jones, the People's Temple in 1978. Or David Koresh, the Branch Davidians in 1993. Those would be examples of delusions. Now, let me go to illusion. Illusion is a distorted perception of something that may be there. So if you're you're driving and you see the street ahead of you 50 miles off, and it looks like there's water in the street, there may be something there, maybe some water there, but there's definitely a street there. That would be an example of an illusion. Uh, And a hallucination is seeing something that is not really there. It's a false perception of, of something that's not really there. This view was popular 100 years ago, but it's not anymore. The disciples recorded eating and drinking with Jesus and touching him, touching his hands. Things do, that do not happen in a hallucinations. Hallucinations are individual experiences. They happen in your own minds. And hallucinations always have to do with something that's already in your mind, something you already know about. But as I said to the Jews, this idea of the Messiah rising in the middle of history is completely foreign to them. So most likely they would not have had a hallucination of seeing him risen from the dead. It was completely foreign. They had no idea about this. It was not in their mind. There's a story of somebody who interviewed some Navy SEALs. And Navy SEALs go through this thing called Hell Week, where they are put to the test. Their bodies are put to the through almost uh, hypothermia. They're put in freezing cold water. They're given a real small amount of sleep, just enough to kind of get their body going again, given small amounts of food. And during these trainings, their body is so deprived that they start to hallucinate. And one of the Navy SEALs says, where the hallucinations happen the most is out in the water when they're on the boats. So one Navy SEAL will talk about seeing an octopus starting to come up out of the water and it's got hands. Just this crazy octopus. One Navy, another Navy SEAL on the boat talks about this big wall that starts to come up out of the water and their boat's about to hit it unless they steer a different direction. But when these Navy SEALs are interviewed later on, other Navy SEALs had no idea what these people saw. Each one inside that boat had their own individual hallucination. But we hear from Paul that 500 people saw this. It's a, it's not, hallucinations are not a group event. They're individual events. Like I said, this theory is not supported by many critics today, unless you're on an extreme fringe, on the extreme fringe or position on this. The next theory is the lie hypothesis, that they stole the body. Most scholars don't buy this as well. Why would ten disciples willingly die for what they knew was a lie? The book of Acts was written within 25 years of Christ's death. 
it would have been circulating. People would have been able to show it to be a lie by pointing to the empty tomb, or by pointing to the body in the tomb. The next hypothesis is a legend hypothesis. This is one of the more popular today. And what this talks about is it's a a legend, kind of like the Gospel of Peter, how there was embellishment and things that were added on to the original story. It's kind of like when you have one of those, when you're growing up and you have those cups, and there'd be a string that went to the cup, and you'd say something into it, and somebody on their side would get some of what you said. uh, Or even actually a better example would be you have a line of, say, 30 people. I don't know if you ever played this, but you had one person that made made something up, and they told it to the next person. They had to whisper it. And then they whispered it to the next, and they whispered it to the next, and they whispered it to the next. By the end, the story is completely different, right? That's kind of this idea of a legend, a legend, embellishment, stuff being added. Well, legend takes a long time to develop. Roman history is usually separated by a generation or two or even more so as to build the legend into it where the accounts of the resurrection were of Jesus are all written about within 50 years of Jesus' death, which makes it very hard for it to be a legendary embellishment. For the resurrection to be legend, it would have accumulated at an unbelievable rate never done before. All New Testament scholars agree that the Gospels were written down and circulated within the first generation that the events occurred during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Like Paul said, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul's saying this while most of them are still alive. Even Bart Ehrman, as I said before, he dates the tradition handed down to Paul within five years. This is another example of an enemy attestation. Bart Ehrman is out to try to disprove the New Testament as being unreliable. Another theory is pagan influences, myths. Skeptics frequently cite Osiris, Tammuz, Adonai, Attis, and Marduk as examples of dying and rising gods. The earliest versions of the death and resurrection of the Greek mythological figure Adonai appeared after A.D. 150, way after Christ's death. There's no literature contemporary to the disciples that this was a genre of that period. Most sources which contain parallels originated after Christianity established. The only one that happened before that predates Christianity is the cult of Osiris. Gary Habermas says this about that. Osiris was killed by his brother, chopped up into 14 pieces and scattered throughout Egypt. The goddess, Isis, collected and reassembled his parts and brought him back to life. Unfortunately, she was only able to find 13 pieces, not 14. Moreover, it is questionable whether Osiris was brought back to life on earth or seen by others as Jesus was. He was given status as a god of the gloomy underworld. So the picture we get of Osiris is that of a guy who does not have all his parts and who maintains a shadowy existence as god of the mummies. As a friend of Gary Habermas, Chris Clayton, put it, Osiris' return to life was not a resurrection, but a zombification. 
It was like The Walking Dead. That would be a great one for The Walking Dead. Further, the hero of the account is not even Osiris, but Isis, or even Horus, their son. This is far different than Jesus' resurrection account, where he was a glorious, risen prince of life who was seen by others on earth before his ascension into heaven. Since World War II, scholars widely reject this because most of these mystery myths had no major influence in first century Palestine. Most parallels are apparent and not real. They use sloppy terminology. And the early disciples were Jews, and it was unthinkable to borrow ideas from pagan religions. They saw pagan religions as abhorrent to God. There's one called the swoon theory. Antony Flew promoted this one for a lot of his life. And the swoon theory goes like this, that Christ didn't actually die before he was taken off the cross. But if you read the uh, Journal of American Medical Association, they actually did this study on the Romans, how they did the scourging and the crucifixions. And the chances of a body surviving, even the scourging alone, is very slim. And the fact that he was scourged and then he was put on a cross and that his legs were broken to make him suffocate, the chances of him surviving that are very slim. Literally impossible. When they break their legs, it's called crura fragrium. It's the act of the breaking the legs with a heavy club or mallet to speed up the death process. The Romans were experts at killing people. They were experts at crucifixion. To think that they didn't know that he was dead or maybe took him off while he was still alive is very improbable. Just think about it. Think about Jesus coming off the cross. He maybe has some broken legs. He's been scourged, so he's got chunks of flesh off of his back. Imagine him walking into the room with his disciples. He's just like, hey, how would you like to have a glorified body like this? Wouldn't this be awesome? Just imagine it. It's like he's walking into the room with these guys, and he's got his legs broken. He's probably, he probably would have had to drag himself into the room, and he would have been halfway dead with flesh coming out. It's just, when you think about it, a German scholar D.F. Strauss says this, it's not plausible that having been scourged and crucified, Jesus pushed the heavy stone away from the tomb with pierced hands and walked blocks on pierced and wounded feet. Would the disciples have been like, gee, I can't wait to have that type of glorious body. Gary Habermas also says that a combination of alternative theories leads to higher higher probability. It's this myth that when you have when you can combine these alternative theories, it actually makes it more like ad hoc. Like they're just trying to throw something in at the spur of the moment to try to just defeat or get away from this hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead. Combination theories lead to higher improbability. Suppose you take a quarter and you flip it. 50% it'll land heads. Now add a nickel. Percentage that both will land heads is 25%. Add three more nickels, so a total of five coins, the odds all will land heads is 3%. So three theories would have a probability of 3% of, being, of all of them being correct. 
five theories, each having 50% probability, lead to a combined probability of 3%. That is a 97% chance that things did not happen according to the combination of the theories. When we take the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead, it accounts for all of them. There's no other theories added. There's only one hypothesis. I mentioned Occam's razor last week. And it says that the the hypothesis that has the least amount of assumptions is the one we should go with. And the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead is that hypothesis. It's got the broadest scope or explanation for what occurred. The person has been caught up in a lie and then fabricates new lies in an attempt to defend his original lie is acting in an ad hoc manner. I've got a video. I I mentioned N.T. Wright. I've got a video here by him talking about the resurrection. In three, two, one. The resurrection of Jesus took everybody by surprise. The disciples weren't expecting it. They knew perfectly well if you followed somebody who you thought was the Messiah and he got killed, then that was it. We know of at least a dozen other messianic or prophetic movements within the hundred years either side of Jesus. They routinely ended with the death of the founder. Um, and if, they, if the movement wanted to continue, they didn't say, oh, he's been raised from the dead. They said, let's find his brother or his cousin or somebody who can carry on this movement. We can see how those Jewish groups did that. This one did it differently. They had James, the brother of Jesus, as this great leader in the early church. Nobody said James was the Messiah. They said Jesus was the Messiah. Why? He's dead. They they got him. Didn't you realize they crucified him? No, he was raised from the dead. The only way you can explain why Christianity began and why it took the very precise shape it was is, let's say it cautiously first, they really did believe he was bodily raised from the dead. And then if you take the second question and say, why would they believe that? You can go through all the theories that they found themselves forgiven, that they had a fresh sense of the presence of God, that this was cognitive dissonance, etc. And you bring all those theories to the actual facts that we know on the ground from the first century. They just don't fit. The only way you can explain the rise of the early Christian belief that Jesus was raised is that there really was an empty tomb, they really did meet Jesus alive again in a transformed body, and the thing makes sense. Of course, when I wrote a big book on this, my philosophy tutor from Oxford, who was an atheist, um, uh, read it, and he said, great book, you really make the argument, he said, I simply choose to believe that there must be some other explanation, even though I don't know what it was. I said, fine, that's as far as I can take you. I can't bully you into saying, therefore, you must believe, because to do that requires a change of worldview. But once you change the worldview and say, maybe there really is a creator God, and maybe this creator God really is sorting out this sad old world at last, then everything else makes sense in a way that it doesn't with any other possibility. Like I said, Gary Habermas and N.T. Wright, if you want to narrow down the authors who you want to read, those would be the guys if, if you want to study specifically the resurrection. All right? Let me go ahead and close us in prayer. Dear Lord, just thank you for this time that we have together tonight. Just talk about this 
uh, important topic. Like I said, Christianity stands and falls on this. And it's thank- It's just, I'm so grateful for this because according to your mercy, you've, you've caused us to be born again through the, re- the resurrection of your son that gives us a living hope, hope that we live with every day and my, me, myself, I, I forget it all the time. And I need to have this hope when I start to complain about silly and stupid things. Just thank you for all your many blessings. In your precious name, amen.